0: Well, friends, today is our 20th week in the book of Exodus, and uh, this is actually our last Sunday in this series, and I must say that seriously, I have personally loved this series just for me, myself, more so, here's the transparency of a pastor, more so than I even thought going into it. Um And I hope you have too. I've loved walking through this with you. It's had a big impact in my own life. What I want to do this morning, being that it's our last Sunday studying this series together, I'd like for us to begin reflecting on what I think is an amazing picture. Take a look at this picture. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's just a regular picture of Sunday services here. In fact, this was back when we had one service. And those of you who are new are going to be in the choir and have wondered, how does the choir fit up here? Look, that's how. Um, you may just be thinking that uh, this is just a regular Sunday. And in many ways it is. But I want to tell you, this is way more than a Sunday service picture. Way more. And That's why I love this picture. Why? Because of what it represents. Because of the story that it tells. Understand, there's a journey story behind this picture. In fact, there's a whole bunch of journey stories behind this picture. And I'd like for us just to kind of start here, being that it's a reflection, kind of a looking back on this series and finishing up today. I'd like for us just to here take a little while and remind us about what's behind this picture. It was two years ago that there was a couple who was looking for a new church on the west side of Indianapolis. And there were good churches around. But at the same time, it wasn't like there was a church that fit them and what they wanted to see take place and and philosophy and, and form and just many other things. It just was like it's just not connecting. So this couple was talking about a friend. Actually, this friend lives up in Chicago and attends and was actually on staff at Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago, a very large church in that area. And she said that uh, Harvest was in the process of beginning to plant churches. So this couple thought, well, maybe there's a possibility with this. So they contacted Harvest in Chicago and began a relationship together and talking. And it was like, yeah, let's see if God could be behind this thing so what they did from there is they began putting together a core team of some people who might be like-minded like them and interested and looking for a church like what they were thinking about. And so a core team began to be established and they prayed. Met on Sunday evenings and talked together, learned about what harvest was about, philosophy, and they prayed. And they prayed for things like people. Prayed for things like God's presence. Prayed for things like a place. We prayed for things like pastors. And it was about six months later that a pastor joined the team, and that was myself, my wife and I, and our daughter Emily at the time was finishing up her senior year of high school. And we moved down here. Karen and I and Emily had been up in the Chicago area for about six months with Harvest in the process of preparing to plant a Harvest Church to be one of the planting pastors in their plan. And so we came down, and it was just a God deal. And then it was a couple months later that through another God deal, God worked it out that uh, Pastor Nick and Jill could join the team. Actually, Ian was just born at that time as well. And uh, what a blessing. Well, the plant team grew to about 90. And then it was in March of 2008 that Harvest Indy West launched. Let me tell you, all this is behind this picture. There was also about, a, a from this core team, about $100,000 that were committed to getting this thing started. Unbelievable. December of 2008, the attendance was averaging 310, and then in April and May, before the summer season hit, both months we were averaging 510. Our lowest attendance Sunday was our very first Sunday. I'm just telling you, that is not the normal harvest process. Last year, there were some 17 small groups, just under 200 people involved in small groups. Every Sunday, there's 100 people serving in some capacity here, whether it's set up, tear down, kids ministries, ushering, whatever. We have more couples here, and this picture represents this. We have more couples here and men here serving in children's ministries than churches two to three times our size. Why do I know that? Because of the church I came from in the past that was three times our size. And I headed up the first through sixth grade children's ministries as part of my job. And it was filled with women teaching, love that, but was lacking in men and kids love men. And so because of how we do things here and how we think here in coming together and doing ministry together, we've got more men in kids' ministries than churches three times our size. That's behind this picture as well. This picture represents lives that have been refreshed, lives that have come to Christ, Lives that have been baptized in a horse trough that we bring in here. And I hope again soon. We This summer, this picture represents two teams going over to Romania to help plant two other churches over in Romania. 30 people from our church. That's like 6-7% of our total average attendance on a Sunday going over to Romania. Are you kidding me? A church that wasn't even a year and a half old. I don't get it. But all that's behind this picture. This picture also for me confirms the fact that people are yearning to be passionate for Christ and are tired of just dullness, Picture represents that people are serious, want to get into God's word. Last Sunday, Eric filled in for me and grateful for that. Had an opportunity to visit a large church on the west side of Indianapolis. And one of the things as a pastor I always look for when I go to places and have the opportunity to visit, two things I look for. One is how people sit. And two is how many people bring their Bible. Because those two things tell a lot about a church and about the people in the church. It was so sad to me as Karen and I were walking and we went to their, the first service, early service, and then came here for the second. And um, And it was just a good church, yet it burdened me that about one out of ten people in my calculations were bringing their Bible into church. And it's a Bible-teaching church. I don't get that. I'm so grateful that we have bunches of people that bring their bible here because people want to dig into the word this picture represents the fact of people wanting to impact each other or people wanting to impact the community people wanting to impact the world for christ listen this picture is a redemption story picture and this is not about patting ourselves on the back this is all about a big god doing a big work through his people unbelievable don't get it love talking about it why because it so gets off of me Because it's unexplainable. Love this picture. This picture also represents what's coming ahead. And I have no idea. And at times it scares the living life out of me, and at times it just excites me to no end. Well, that's this picture. I want to bring up, as we're kind of on a reflection Sunday here, finishing up our series by the way, I said when I attempt to bring their Bible and uh, we're passionate about the Bible and you haven't opened it up yet, uh, I understand. Today's a little bit different Sunday. But I want to bring up another picture here. And I love this picture. I love this picture. Why? Because of all that it represents. We have been on this journey through Exodus and we have seen this journey story that is behind this picture. Listen, two million Hebrews living in the desert outside of Egypt is an amazing reality in itself. Two million people encamped around the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. Unbelievable when you know the story behind it that we've been going through for the last 19 Sundays. This is about 2 million people that have a promise that God is going to victoriously bring them a new land. And the fact of the reality is is God now dwells within the center of them. His glory dwells within the center of them. Are you kidding me? These were polytheists years ago. People placed and positioned and empowered for monumental God purpose. And God brought them here. Let's go to Exodus chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40, because I want to get the further context of this picture, because most of us are kind of like, well, we haven't talked about the tabernacle yet. Okay, let's do right now. Exodus chapter 40, by the way, did you notice how we just made like some significant jumps We went from Exodus 20 to Exodus 32 to Exodus 40. Like Doug, don't you believe the rest of the stuff is good? Yes, but we're starting a new series next week. And my goal was to get to Mount Sinai and we're two steps beyond that. So we're making some jumps to fill in the rest of the story here. Let me read Exodus 40 for us. I've got an English standard version and You just kind of follow along in your Bible. The Lord, verse 1, chapter 40, spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month... You shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of the covenant. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony of the covenant, and you shall screen the ark with a veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting, and place the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. Verse 10, you shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. And you shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Uh, just take a look up here at the at the picture. Computer picture of this uh, what it likely looked like as described, and it just kind of gives you an idea visually as well as what's being talked about here. This is not the Taj Mahal. This is not a temple as we might think of a temple. This this is a portable god tent. I mean, this has to be portable because they don't know it yet, but there's about 40 years of trekking that's about to take place. And so this is what they're talking about. Nothing overly magnificent, but this is what's been laid out. Let's pick up verse 12. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him, and he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and... Put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. That statement is amazing. Polytheistic slaves now called to be a nation of priests for God's glory. (laughs) Big God. Verse 16, Then Moses did, way to go, dude, and then Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Oh, by the way, this statement, all that the Lord commanded him, it's going to be coming up a whole bunch of times. And in fact, you're going to help me with it as we come up here in a little bit. Verse 17, in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. That statement right there, I need your help here. Because when we come up to that statement, you're going to say it for me. Let's practice. All right, verse 19. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent over it, He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark or on the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside of the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord. You kind of get an idea that like God wants something being said here? It's pretty cool really. Verse 24, he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and he set up the lamps before the Lord. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it. You guys sound like a cult. Verse 28. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering. (laughs) He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Verse 34, then. I won't bring in the sound effects this Sunday. I don't know what the sound effects were if there were anyway. But let me make this statement. The then is one year to the day after Passover. According to the the calendar, and we had talked about that earlier uh, in Exodus, that God had instituted a new calendar. This is one year to the day, one year to the day after Passover. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Two times. God wants us to know something that happened. The glory of the Lord what? I mean, that tent. I don't know what that looked like, but whatever it looked like, it was filled. (laughs) And it was filled, not with Mountain Dew, and not with Twinkies, not with a food stand, not with other stuff, not with religious kind of idols, but with God's glory, a cloud, I don't know what that was like, but could we agree that it was really cool? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, verse 36, throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, well, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel. Love that. The cloud and the fire was in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, this whole series has been entitled Exodus, A Journey of Redemption. It's wonderful. How cool is it, the fact that, and honestly, I didn't even look at this, think about it, but the last word in Exodus, at least in the ESV, is journey. This is about a journey story. And this picture represents that journey story. Here, God now dwells with his people, with his chosen people, with his redeemed people, his brought out people. By the way, the next time the glory of the Lord is going to show himself to the people, it's called Jesus Christ. And may that remind us well of Revelation chapter 21 that one day the dwelling place of God will be with man. Bring it on. I love this picture because of chapter 40, what it just tells, what it represents. But I love this picture, like the previous picture, because of the story behind it. And it's a good story, it's a great story. It's a redemption story. It's a story that reminds us of what God does in redeeming people. And so we're going to remember the story again. Here we go. In Genesis, God, in his sovereignty, selected a man called Abraham. And made a covenant with him. When we think of covenant, think of marriage. Standing and making a covenant before people that this is the deal I'm now changing my life to and being a part of. God made a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham was going to be the father of a nation. Didn't have many kids. Was really old. Kind of old and no kids is a problem. But not really for God. And so God allows him and his wife, Sarah, to be able to have a baby. So they have a baby. That baby's Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah then have a baby whose name is Jacob. And Jacob and Rebekah have two twins. Come out fighting. Esau and Joseph. And Joseph eventually is a little bit older. He ends up, I'm sorry, Esau and Jacob. I got the story all messed up. But Joseph is born later on. Joseph gets born and Joseph ends up in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1. All of Joseph's family is in Egypt moved over. God does a great work by bringing this slave over there. By the way, isn't that an interesting reality? Joseph starts as a slave in Egypt, ends up as prime minister by his president, second in command, big God. And those are the Joseph years. And then in Exodus 1, it talks about for some 400 years, the Hebrews, they were growing like rabbits multiplying two million of them, ending up eventually over some period of time. They forgot about Joseph when Joseph had done, and they became slaves in Pharaoh's household, in Pharaoh's land. There they are, two million Hebrew slaves, and yet wondering what in the world's going on. They're living more like Egyptians than they are like Yahweh worshiping people. And so God still knows exactly what's going on. And just as God said He would do, God brings a baby boy along and makes a provision for redemption for them to bring him out. So this baby boy floats into Pharaoh's home, and we know him as Moses. And Moses is raised for 40 years in Egypt, and in 40 years he's there being trained and going to the Harvard, the Yale, the Stanford of the world. There he is being raised up, and eventually he makes a really bad choice, kills a guy at the age of 40 and has to hightail it out of town, ends up in the land of Midian. He's over now in the land of Midian about the age of 40 as a recluse, as a nomad, What in the world is God going to do with him? But he's there for 40 years. He marries, he has father-in-law and his wife, and he's raising sheep. What an impressive job from where he had come before. And yet God, in the providence of it all, has him go to the Mount Horeb Sinai area, and there God shows up in a bush. (laughs) God's just so creative. And it's a burning bush. It yeah, won't we'll go there. It's just cool stuff. God's there in a burning bush and they have a little conversation together. And in this conversation together, if you remember, we'd gone over this. Moses is like, But who am I? And God's like, I am. And he's like, But what shall I say? Don't worry about it. I am. But they will not believe me. No, but I am. But I'm not eloquent. Yo, dude, I am. Please send someone else. No. You got to remember, I'm the I am. Listen, this is my plan. I'm the guy behind this thing. I'm the one. I'm God. Well, Moses gets on board with it, goes back to the land of Midian, has a little conversation with father-in-law, grabs his family and starts on the trek back to Egypt. Leaves Midian and returns to Egypt and returns to the court of Pharaoh. Makes him pleased that God had sent him. The I am had sent him. Pharaoh wasn't all that impressed. He wanted to know what his God was like in a polytheistic world. It made complete sense. Things pass along. Exodus 7, the plagues begin. God is going to bring judgment. Judgment. And the plagues begin on the land of Egypt. And God is all about, remember, all about showing himself. Listen, this was not just about judgment. This was about God showing himself. Showing himself to Pharaoh. Showing himself to the Egyptians. Showing himself to Moses and Aaron. Showing himself to the Hebrews that were there. Because they needed to come to understand who the creator God was. And God was showing himself through these judgments going on. Why didn't he do one judgment? Why couldn't he just do it right away? Yes, he could. But God was about showing himself. And God was doing it through this matter. We come to the last plague, the Passover, Exodus 11. And God says, take an unblemished lamb, a male, a one-year-old, and sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of it and blot it, paint it on the door frames of your house, over the top of the, the entryway into your house. And then what you're to do is you're to put yourself under that and stay under the blood all night long as my judgment passes over. And God passes over, and His judgment passes over, and those who are covered by the blood, grace is extended to those who do not have the covering of blood. Judgment comes upon them. This is so the story of the gospel. Then the exodus. God shows His bicep and just brings them out. And they cross the Red Sea and come across, whether it's the north route, south route, whatever, they crossed. And they were on the east side of the Red Sea. And there they are over on the east side. God had just been doing an immense, marvelous, incredible work over the last year-ish with them. And there they are. And now God knows that it's not just about bringing out just to be able to now do whatever you want. It's about bringing out. It's about saving so that they live it out. And so now they are, and so God begins to help them understand this, and he literally, as we saw in this in Exodus 15 through 17, God tests them, and he tests them right where we need to be tested, with our stomachs. He tests them through thirst and hunger and thirst. God is about helping his people realize that he is sufficient for them. He is the one who is going to take care of them, and having a God-view through life, my life is about my holiness and giving him glory, not about my happiness. And he's testing them and helping them to understand what life with Yahweh is all about. Then in Exodus 17, the battle takes place. The Amalekites come from behind and begin to attack, and God brings Joshua. And remember, Moses standing with his arms up and the whole thing, and and God conquers. They're beginning to look like a nation. Then Jethro shows up in Exodus 18, helps Moses think through some of the structure of what's going on. It's not so much about the structure, it's the fact I think in it that's the organization for for significant impact from top to bottom where Moses was like the man and everybody's kind of like following. Now it's all spread out. God wants his people involved in the doing of ministry, helping one another, coming side by side and leading together. And the appeal comes. Then they come in Exodus 19, the Sinai meeting. And God shows up on Mount Sinai. Two million people at the foot of the mountain. I want to tell you that... I think in all so far of all the Sundays for me personally that was my most enjoyable fun Sunday to teach because God was on the mountain. Two million brought out polytheists before the feet of God. That's the perfect time for God to say, now that I have your attention, I would like to be able to talk to you about what it means to live for me. He gives the Ten Commandments, talks about the tabernacle and the ark. He talks about the priests and about the Sabbath, all through 20 through 31. Then last week, as Eric covered, we had, as I call it, the wallah calf. What is that? What kind of Hebrew word is that? This is the Hebrew word. In other words, God, or Moses comes back down. He talks to Aaron, and, and, and he says, what in the world is going on? And Aaron responds in Hebrew. He says, listen, I put the stuff in, and voila, a calf came out. Okay, come on. Just have some fun with me. Okay, you know, it's poof, voila, this calf comes out. One of the most humorous moments in all of Scripture. Dude, are you like you kidding me? You think I'm going to go with that one? Oh, love that. And so the calf comes out and they have a hard time, just like we do, just like God's redeemed people struggle in life. This isn't about perfection. This isn't about a place. The holy, holy is for saints. This is about a hospital for sinners growing together for God's glory. They had things to learn as we had learned then in Exodus 33 through 39, the tabernacle and the ark and the garments are made and then the glory of the Lord fills in Exodus 40. Let me remind us of the last verses, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. I love this picture because of the redemption journey story that it tells. Slaves to Pharaoh, redeemed. Polytheists, have come to know and see the God of the universe. It's got a past story. It's got a present story. But it also has a future story. And they are positioned for immense impact. God is among them. And there they are. What are they going to do now? If you know the rest of the story, it's not a pretty story. God's going to do what God wants to do. He's going to accomplish what he needs to accomplish, what he purposes to accomplish. But part of it was as his people didn't come alongside and do what he wanted to have happen. The rest of the story really from here is a pretty sad story. We're not going to go into that. But I do want to do this. As we reflect on these things, I just want to pause. And I want to use this picture as an opportunity to ask you, do you have a picture of a redemption story of what God has done in your life? This isn't just about a cute little story. This is about a great big God who works in and through the lives of people for his glory. And there's an immense, wonderful God story behind it. What's your story? If we leave Exodus and we do not see the reality of a journey of redemption and a redemption story, we've completely missed it. And the point of this is to help us, to help you, to help me see, has God done a redemption work in your life? Do you have a redemption story? And yes, I'm going to drive it home hard today because this is about a redemption story. The Bible says that we all start as slaves to sin, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us in this room. The Bible says that we cannot earn our way out of that condition. People who say, well, I'm trying to do the best I can. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, definitely not a Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, so we're still sinners before the foot of the cross. And Ephesians two eight nine says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. Listen, how much good is good enough? Answer, none. You can good yourself to death. And the fact of the matter is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the cool part. There's a redemption story out of it. The Bible says that you need to be brought out, that Jesus Christ is the answer to that. First Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe, it is with the mouth that you confess and are saved. Have you driven in the stake in the ground for Christ? Realize that you're a sinner falling short. There's no way you can get out of that. Only through the sacrifice, through the blood covering of the lamb. Is there any hope for God's grace to pass over the fact of my sin and your sin? By the way, I'm not talking about just Romans 10, 9, and 10. That would be a great error and a common error. Well, I remember when I was like two and I prayed. Here's the deal. We stake it to live it. There should be a Hansel and Gretel trail. From the time and the place where I staked it, where I said, God, listen, I need you. I realize who I am, I realize who you are, and I need you, and I receive Christ as my Savior. And ever since there, there's like a ground of these little fruits, a fruit of repentance, a changed life. And so at times when I sit there and I go, like, what does all this mean in my life? Does God really save me? Has God really saved me? Look back at the fruit. Karen had the opportunity this week to talk with someone who's saying, I have not seen fruit in my life for years, decades. Well, then drive the stake now. Praise the Lord that happened. Jesus is not about our trophy. Jesus is not about my golden ticket. Jesus is about changing, coming to change my life. It's pretty serious, Doug. Absolutely. And get this. They had a hard time understanding this as well. They had a hard time grasping this. They had the same reality that you and I go through. I I want to live about me. God says, no, it's about me. Have you staked it to live it? Colossians 2, 6, and 7, just as you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, continue to walk in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ compels us to live for him. Philippians 3, Paul says, but whatever was to my prophet, I now stake it. I now consider it lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's stake in it, to live it. That's a redemption story. That's a life fruit trail story. Have you staked it to live it? We're going to take communion here in a little while. Communion is all about remembering that redeeming work of Savior. If you've done that, praise the Lord. But listen to me if you've received Christ as your Savior, the big question for you is are you living it? Are you dead dog serious about this? Not a golden ticket. Living for the Redeemer of the universe. What's better than that? Nothing. Well, as we move into communion now to all of us at harvest, God has shown himself very big to us. And I just want to ask us how are we going to handle his blessing? Where are we going to go from here? It's been 18 to 24 months since Moses showed up in Egypt. Harvest, we're about 18 months old. It's been a big God story so far, and we're very blessed. And we're at a great place, and we can either get sloppy and selfish or full throttle for his glory. I vote for full throttle. I'm not there. You know that. I'm not perfect. You know that. But together ahead, listen, team harvest, let's press the full throttle. Starting next week, we're starting a new series in Titus, full throttle. Paul is writing to Titus, and he's helping this pastor, this new pastor in a new church, helping him to come to understand what it means to set themselves up, to place themselves in such a position that they're able to be a full-throttle ministry to be able to bring great glory to Christ. And we're going to go through that from September through November. Verse by verse, we're working through that, Booger. And we're going to be looking and working and thinking and chalking about what we need to do, but especially what we need to be so that we can be full throttle for him. Can you go back to the last picture? That picture leaves the question of where are we going from here? Next picture, this is going to be talking about where we're going from here. The transition from Exodus 40 to Titus is really a beautiful transition. And we're going to be enjoying it together. Well, Exodus is a great redemption story, and communion is a great opportunity to remember that story. And this Journey of Redemption series through Exodus is ultimately about the work of the Redeemer. Do you know Christ as your Savior? If not, I would just ask for you today. Today Today's your day. Just right now, just take the time and just commit yourself to Christ. Again, not the golden ticket, but about coming to know Christ for the life change. God, I've been about this, and now I want to be about you for life. Just like in a marriage. Listen, I'm here standing you, telling you that I'm marrying Karen as my wife. Till death do us part. That's the stake in it. That's the kind of thing. Listen, I'm here, Christ, and I want for you to be able to know that I'm in, I'm in state for you. I'm about living for you and I got to help figure it out. Now we're here to help, right? You can do that right now, but we're going to take communion here. We want to have you take communion and if you've received Christ as your Savior, we'd love to have you be a part of that. In fact, those who are going to be helping with it, would you come on down and get ready to help serve us? Communion story is all about the blood in the body of Christ, sacrificed on the cross for us. The Bible says to do this regularly to remember what's taken place. You cannot fully grasp the reality of communion until you begin grasping the reality of the Passover. It's all about grace now. Christ has conquered the law, it's about living for Him. And let's just take some time and prepare ourselves for communion.